Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 29, 2016, and this is episode 1754 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got an interesting one for you today. I have Daniel Lawton uh, on the air with you guys today. Daniel is... Jeff Lawton's son, for those of you who know who Jeff Lawton is out of the permaculture world. Uh, but we're going to talk today not really so much about permaculture or growing stuff or anything like that. A little bit of that comes into it. But really we're going to talk about hand tools because Daniel is the founder and CEO of a company called permaculturehandtools.com. And even if you're not a permaculturist, uh, I think today's show will be really interesting to you if you do anything with land management. You know, we talk all the time around here about, well, what do you do if the shit hits the fan? If you can't get uh, gas, for instance. You, using hand tools uh, circumvents that. It, it leads to a lower impact. Uh, and there's something very, very satisfying about using hand tools, especially if they're well-made. A lot of the stuff that Daniel offers is handmade in, in various parts of the world. It provides an income for people uh, in, in a place where there's not a whole lot of opportunities for income. And it's really, really well-made stuff. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation today about hand tools, their use, their implementation, uh, some of the stuff that Daniel has going on with classes on using tools and making tools. It's really great stuff. I will warn you, there'll be a few parts where there might seem like some rocky, bumpy transitions. I still have some editing to do after I get done with this intro segment because Daniel, like his father, lives in Australia, and it seems whenever I talk to somebody in Australia, there's always some intermittent Internet gremlins going on. So... The actual like last five minutes, ten minutes of the interview, um, Daniel's doing the best he can with what he thinks I said, and he gets pretty good answers to it, given that. I didn't even realize it. He just kind of rolled with it. There was points where I sounded like and that, right? And he got the gist of it and just rolled with it because he sounded fine on my side. We had to break the conversation once and reconnect. Uh, so be aware if there's like a jump cut or something, it's me avoiding you hearing something that wouldn't have made any sense. It's not editing stuff out. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. It's always good to have some historical context as we look at things in our world around us. So we do this history segment every day, uh, looking at the year that was the episode. The year, this time, of course, being 1754. I have two segments for you in the TSP Wiki today to choose from. I have What Caused the French and Indian War, and I have Captain Bly and Mutiny on the Bounty. Some important births, too. Uh, Marie Antoinette is uh, born this year. King Louis XVI of France. And Thomas Boulder. Uh, Boulder dies means censorship. He will publish an edition of Shakespeare with all the naughty parts removed. He will be the model for early television censorship boards. So the original censor of things that they don't want you to hear is born this year. Let's read what caused the French and Indian War. Peace. All Frederick the Great wants is peace for a little while. In a fit of despair, the Holy Roman Empress uh, conceded Lower Sicilia to him with her concession. Troops of the alliance on both sides could focus on other battlefronts. In the last few years, French troops have encroached upon British American colonies. They have invaded along three fronts, one in Nova Scotia, two in New England, and three down the Ohio River Valley. Currently, Britain is not paying much attention to these skirmishes, but by next year, the situation will fly out of control. Coming war will be wide-ranging and may have many names, including Seven Years' War in English-speaking Canada, the War of Conquest in French-speaking Canada, and the French and Indian War in the British American colonies. The war will extend to Europe, Africa, and Asia, with each having their own war names. This is a world war, no matter what name you put on it. My take by Alex Shrugged. Did Colonel Washington start a world war at 22? He was ordered to the Ohio River Valley, which is now western Pennsylvania, to deliver a letter to demand to the French to vacate. The French refused. Then Washington was ordered to hold the forks of the Ohio, which is near Pittsburgh. So he built Fort Necessity, and this is where things get fuzzy. Somehow a French patrol was ambushed, at the head of the, and the head of a French diplomat was crushed by a tomahawk. Who knows what? 
then the French attack for necessity, which was a makeshift poorly sighted, uh, uh, and after a rain, uh, the gunpowder was wet. The French gave Washington a chance to surrender and return to Virginia. He accepted when he returned with his troops, he expected to be dressed down. Instead, he was congratulated, probably because Washington managed to disentangle himself from a straight-up fight, which he would have lost. Did Washington start a war? I seriously doubt it. The French and Indian War started based on too many troops having too little to do and British colonial governors escalating the fight. Um, another consequence of the French and Indian War is that while the British Empire won the war here in the colonies, as they called it at the time, it was a very expensive war to fight. And it was a big part of why many of the taxes imposed on the colonists were imposed on the colonists uh, in, in further years to pay for the debt. And England felt that, hey, we acquired all this debt, pushing the French out so that you could have this, this territory for your colonies and not have to worry about them and these Indians running around busting your skulls. So it's only right that you pay it back. So it actually is a peace leading up to the American Revolution, one that often gets ignored in history classes. So there you go. No big insights today, just a little story of a war that was a world war that was never called one. Next up, let's uh, hear real quick from our sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. And with that, I'd like to introduce our special guest, uh, Daniel Lawton. Hey, Daniel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Hey, I'm glad to have you with us today. I, a lot of folks know who your dad is, but I think a lot of the audience doesn't know who, who Daniel Lawton is uh, other than a name connection. So could you kind of talk about, like, we're going to talk about permaculture tools today and, and the, the stuff that you have available. But kind of take us back further. Like, what was your, other than the fact that your, your dad's such a big part of the movement, like kind of what was your entry into permaculture and how did you get your start and kind of how did you take your path? Because I know you kind of have done your own thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I started um, and started getting involved the same time as, as my dad did. But I sort of was in the background because I was only a kid. Um, so I was there when dad was experimenting with compost, um, when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten. Um, and then, you know, when dad started getting into it, you know, his first overseas permaculture trip to, uh, Ecuador, I went with him. Um, I was there. Um, and then when he, he started, uh, uh, started taking over Bill's farm and, and working on the permaculture research institute, I was in the background. I was there too. Um, and and as I moved along with things, I, I realized I wanted to have the professional a professional stance on things, and I realized where the movement was heading. And um, and I made the decision to to go to university um, and get myself educated on a science background on the stuff I already knew about in permaculture. Um, and, and that's where that's where my background comes into it. So I've gone and done multiple degrees in environmental uh, science and model in environmental engineering, um, so I can have that scientific and engineering background into the the permaculture, you know, information that I already had available to me and that I'd already studied. So I, I was there all through the the startup of the Permaculture Research Institute. Um, and, and at Tagari Farm, uh, working there on and off uh, over many years, and then and then you know, even tagalongs uh, with my old man doing consultations. I can remember doing that when I was a kid, and then was involved heavily involved when they when they moved the farm as well to its current location. 
uh, in the Channon, um, managed it at certain points. So I've I've been along I've been along the journey the whole way. Um, I've just uh, just been in the background for quite a while because I, I was you know I was quite young, um, and then I then decided finally I would go and do what I wanted to do, which was my passion was was uh, hand tools and, and and went and along and did that started my my company. So when did you start like really becoming interested in hand tools and like you, you mentioned engineering, so that gives you like this perspective and ability on things like putting in dams and using excavators and stuff that probably makes you a little safer than some designers out there just kind of free will it without the engineering background. And yet you kind of take like your main lead is this primitive approach with, with hand non mechanized hand tools. What, what kind of does that for you? <laughs> well, I think it's just the simplicity of it, you know, the simplicity of it. I, I, I love great functional design. It's, it's something that, that, um, that that is a that is a core passion of, of myself is is you know simple functional and elegant design and and I think permaculture encompasses that in itself and it, it does so in a, in a really well made hand you know hand tool like something that's a handcrafted hand tool so the the feel and balance of it in comparison to using machinery that's sort of vibrating you to death as you're using it, um, you know, motorized machinery where I'm using a hand tool, it's just you and the tool. Um, and, and that passion started when I started working, um, with the Permaculture Research Institute in, in the very beginning, because we started getting people from all over the place. There wasn't, um, a huge amount of money to buy machinery and we didn't want to go down that road anyway because well they didn't want to go down that road because you know they want to get away from using you know fossil fuels sure and uh um so but it started when i first went to ecuador so that was in 1994 and they were they were they were there and um i got trained um by the macheteros in uh, San Lorenzo. Um, now, they're the machetiers um, of, of Ecuador. And uh, in San Lorenzo, they're the, um, uh, a lot of the communities made up of, of the original towns made up of uh, ex-African uh, slaves that jumped ship and swam to the shore and made a town. And um, it was quite interesting getting getting taught by these guys when I was just a kid of uh, how to use a machete, and that's where it started from there. My passion. Well, and those guys are good at it too. I spent um, six months in Honduras, and as part of a military thing where we were building roads and schools, and we were part of this advanced party that moved on to this camp that was about six acres that we were going to live on for six months in tents. And, like, well, when all the equipment gets there, we'll take care of, like, mowing all this brush down and everything. Well, after, like, two days of pulling ticks out of every part of your body, it's like, okay, that's not going to work. We're not waiting any longer. So we took up a pool, and those guys work, you know, for a couple bucks a day. So we're like, anybody that wants to cut brush, uh, five bucks, you know, to work as long as you feel like, basically. And, man, there was about 20 of those guys in there with machetes. They had that thing cleared in, like, a day, flat. And, I mean... That knocked the ticks back, obviously, because they didn't have place to be. And it's amazing how good those guys are with with you know a simple hand tool like a machete. Oh yeah, it's it's quite incredible um, what they can achieve. Uh, I remember being when I went to I went to uh, another trip with my old man to Costa Rica, and um, uh, next door um, came up one day and. You know, half the paddock next door was gone, and it was like twenty foot high trees. <laughs> and um, I was like, "Wow, they've, they've removed a lot." And I said, "I oh, wonder they're clearing next door." And he goes, "Oh no, that's that's a pasture paddock." And I went, "What?" It was, "Oh yeah, they haven't cut it in twelve months." It looked like a forest. No, it was actually supposed to be pasture land. They just the the owner was a bit slack and hadn't had it cut in a long time. But the amount that they removed in such a short period of time was quite incredible. It, it really is. Um, now, I think one thing that bears mentioning is the tools that you're selling, uh, a lot of them are handcrafted. Uh, they're not, you know, stamped out in a Hong Kong or, you know, Chinese factory 
These are handmade, custom-made tools. Are, are, are they like blacksmith? Do you do blacksmithing yourself? I mean... I've done a, I've done some amateur blacksmithing, yes, um, but I, I get them. Uh, they're made by a blacksmith. Uh, uh, he's got a small team. Uh, generally, he's only got about three, you know, like him and two other guys that do different sections. Um, so he does. There's the master blacksmith. Now, um, uh, I've just recently, a couple of months ago, which I haven't finished editing yet, done an interview with him, and and you get to see the the workshop and, and his blacksmithing, um, which will be very interesting. But he's been uh, he's been making tools since 1971. Um, that's all he's that's all he's ever done. Um, he's part of a uh, a clan in in Indonesia where they just passed down the the blacksmithing clan and they passed down their blacksmithing knowledge from father to son. They're not allowed to teach anybody else. Hmm. Only the, the men in their family. And they've been making tools. He knows he's been making tools for at least four generations in his family, um, continuously. Um, and he knows that he's been making tools since the time of the king. Um, so back in the monarchy days. So they've been making tools in his family for at least a 100 years, continuously. It's pretty amazing. Now, I mean... Um Are you planning on doing anything to, like, empower people to make their own tools? I mean, from what you just said, like, what that guy's doing, that's like a craft that's handed down individually. But are you going to do any courses on either making tools or tool usage or anything like that? Um, I've, I've done both um, at, the, at the Permaculture Research Institute. The last one I did was, um, was about um, uh, how to make your own tool. So I actually... <clears throat> it was only a couple of day course and it was just really simple and it was just to show people don't understand exactly what they can do um, and I just wanted to show how simple it was to do so we made we made a we made a small sickle out of what you could buy at Bunnings now I did that on purpose so Um, you know, Bunnings is just a large warehouse. So, like, equivalent in the U.S. probably was something like we'd call Home Depot or Lowe's. It's exactly the same as Home Depot in the okay. U.S., yeah. pretty much. It's, In fact, the, the model, they actually stole it from <laughs> Home Depot. Gotcha. <laughs> they're not related in any way whatsoever, but you could, you could swear they're exactly the same thing. But, um, yeah, in that two days, we, we made a very nice um, sickle. Um, and it was just made out of um, all the stuff I, I could buy at, at Bunnings and uh, all the tools that you would find, you know, on a, just a regular farm. We didn't use anything special at all. So um, so I'm hoping to run more of those sort of courses. Um, it was quite popular. We also made the sheath, Um, a leather sheath for it. I just wanted to show how simple it was to make one of those, and that was all done by hand. Um, that you have to buy some specialist equipment for, but, sure. but not a lot. Um, and you have to buy it once, obviously. Um, and the the other one doing the uh, tool usage, I've done a number of those, again, at the, at the Permaculture Research Institute. And um, they were really successful. Uh, I incorporated them into their a couple of times into their internship um, that they have there. And and again, I just wanted to, I wanted people to realize just like one, show them the correct technique. I don't know how many times I've seen people using um, different hand tools the wrong way. Um, and just go, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You're using something that's so, so simple and so easy and so great and using it the wrong way and you're using twice as much energy as you need to. Um, and I've shown well-known people in in the field of permaculture go well, do it this way. It uses much less energy, and you use it and go, oh my god, that's so much easier. I'm like, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sickles would be an example. Let's talk a little bit about some of the tools you have. Like, so I was on your site, and I was like really excited to see that you have a serrated sickle back. Oh, I guess three, four years ago, I bought a tool. I don't know if it was something you were working on at that point, but they were just being sold at that point 
on the PRI website, and it was very much the same pattern, but it was a straight edge uh, sickle. And a straight edge sickle and a serrated sickle, as you might imagine, but yet people don't get it. You use them very, very differently, and they have different applications. And to me, a serrated sickle in a lot of ways is safer because you're using it with a slicing motion, and if you lay it against your hand, you're probably likely to notice that before you start pulling. Uh, where if you chop yourself, you've, you, you, you know when you bleed, right? So, like, that's a, like a common thing that people don't get, like, the purpose of, like, a serrated sickle. Why you would, or a rice knife. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of people use them as a swinging tool, but serrated, serrated, uh, sickles of, of any kind, they're, they're a pulling tool. Um, so you, you pull, if you pull and then, turn the blade on the same angle as the curve of the blade. A lot of people pull. Pull's fine, but if you curve it, just if you twist your hand just slightly um, into the point to the middle of you, and then as you pull, you turn on the same angle as the blade, the, the curve, it's far more efficient. Now, um, the Indonesian government did a, um, did a report about hand tools because that's what they use there, mainly, predominantly, and they found that um using serrated sickle was i think it was 23% more efficient than using a non-serrated one hmm. and you had to sharpen it 25% less sure sure cuz serrated protect the edge there was an increase in the amount of back uh um pain related to using the tool but i think that was more about technique so um a lot of of the, them will actually bend over and use the tool. Um, but for me, I'm about a foot and a half taller than most Indonesians. Um, and I certainly don't do that because it's a long way to the ground. So I actually kneel when I use a rice knife. I kneel on one knee with one leg up. Um, and I, I've got quite long arms as well. So I do quite a long reach forward and then I just sort of skip forward as I go go around. And you're right on, you're sort of, you're right down on that level. You're really in amongst it then. And if you're in the food forest, you're rice knifing away and then you've got the stuff in your hand that you've cut out and you can just reach over and mulch the closest tree that's next to you. See, and that's what I love about them. I've been using rice knives for a long time and it's that when you're in an intensely planted area, it's a precision tool. So I'm not, you know, all of a sudden realizing, oh, I've just lopped off that sapling that I've got six months of, you know, of growth into because you have more of a tactile feel and you can clear things out like, I have a huge patch of mint that grows in around some of my young trees, and I can clean that out without hurting the trees. Where if you go in there with a, a power tool like a string trimmer or even something like a scythe, you're very you know it's hard to get a scythe into those tight areas. Yeah, that's right. I get a lot of people ask me about scythes, and and I'm like, well, I do want to stop some. One, they're really big and they're, they're hard to ship, um, but. It, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, you can't get them into those areas. Um, but the rice knife, the rice knife is that precision tool. You know, you, you don't you don't make really make mistakes chopping a tree down with a or even a, a small plant with a rice knife because you're grabbing the stuff you're cutting. You're, it's all close. You know, you're it's just precise. And if you want to get real precise, you get a smaller one. You know, <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you'd be surprised how much you can cut with one in a time time frame. On my YouTube um, channel, you'll see when I was teaching a course, there's I think twelve students um, using rice knives in a row. Yeah, we nailed it. <laughs> it just it's surprising. It just it just we moved through a small food forest and just it was just perfectly mowed and mulched as we moved along. You know, this is not going to sound weird to you, but I know it's going to sound weird to some people. But there is a certain amount of, maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's intrinsic feeling, something that is very pleasing about using a tool like that. Like, you feel good while you're doing it, if that makes sense. That makes that makes perfect sense, and it's the complete opposite to using, you know, uh line trimmer, weed whacker, or brush cutter, whatever you want to call them, you know, because you're vibrating and you feel, it's almost you get angry using it, where when you're using a hand tool and you're, especially when you're, you're using a rice knife and you're on the ground, it's that connection with nature. And if you're using a, 
you know, a well-made hand tool um, that's balanced so it feels comfortable in your hand and it's and it's feels like an extension of you. And, yeah, it's blissful to use. It's just happiness. You're, you're there. You're in amongst nature. You're, 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 you know, you're touching the ground. You're touching the plants, you know, and cutting them. You're mulching stuff. It's just, yeah, I feel it. I love yeah. it. I mean, just even when you, when you, you just feel it cut through the, because it's it's surprising. Like you have this big bundle in your hand, and it, it just cuts so easily, and it just like you feel like like you're actually doing something you're supposed to be doing. Kind of another thing too is like, so I have a lot of people in my audience you'd call preppers, modern survivalists, that are yeah. concerned about system failures and things like that. And a rice knife, a sickle, a machete. As long as you have a basic sharpening tool and some. Uh, some lubricant to maintain it, it's always going to work. I mean, you might use a little bit of uh, petroleum to keep it from rusting, but I mean, you're, you're talking about something that can be stored in, in your hand um, versus having to rely on gasoline or other energy sources. Yeah, that's right. And, and some of, um, like my uh, premium handmade range, the, um, those tools are designed to last until they wear out. And, and I've seen them um, in my toolmaker's shop, my blacksmith's shop, um, where he does refinishing. The guys bring them in. And they're uh, my, like my big sickle that I have. It might be, um, I don't know, half an inch worth of steel left on it. And they're usually about two inches wide. Um, and and that's just, just using it. Uh, as a job all day, every day, and sharpening it, and you're slowly grinding bits of steel off it over time. But yeah, you just need a stone and some sort of lubricant to keep it from rusting, um, and water to, or you could either use an oil stone or, or a water stone. And yeah, simple. Look after it. You know, a good tool like that'll last a lifetime. And then, in spite of what we both said about precision. I'd love to see you carrying a site too, but you're right. I mean, you're shipping probably a lot of your orders to the U.S. from Australia, so that's or wherever you're manufacturing. So that's a, a big shipping thing. But like the scythe is the same type of thing. It's just it's more of your 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 broad scale thing. I mean, I love using a scythe too. It's a very martial arts like movement. It it also feels good, but it it it's not what you're going to use to maintain a, a an emerging food forest. No, no, that's right. So if you're if you're growing, you know, um, if you want to grow mulch in the form of grass, then then yeah, that's a, a scythe's great. Um, ideally, on a reasonably flat spot or a nice gentle angle, so you can it's nice and easy to to, to cut with. Um, the I mean, unless you're growing something, you know, like lucerne, you can cut with it. In a, in a in a broad scale or, or a decent patch of it, yeah. So, and that's the other thing, shipping it, you know. Yeah. But to the US, I've actually got a, a distribution franchise now in the US, so they're shipped from the US when you order them in the US. They're they're actually stored there. Oh, that's great. So that, I'll that's, have to order some stuff from you, and that'll probably save me on shipping. I remember the the one I talked about that I ordered in the past. It cost me almost as much for shipping as it did for the tool. Yeah. So I've I've now they don't have everything available in stock yet. Sure. Uh, but they've got all the majority of the the popular stuffs in stock. Um, so that's uh, that. Yeah. So that they're stored in the US now. So that'll reduce the shipping costs down. It also reduces down um, the you know ecological footprint on the on the tool as well because there's less fossil fuels. So they go straight from the manufacturer straight to the distribution site. In the states, Very and then cool. ship from there. So, and US US shipping is is far cheaper than what it is here in Australia. And yeah, we uh, you have some we're not tough past just about sure. shipping environmental laws in Australia. I mean, the way things have to be packaged and and what have you, especially with international shipping, is I, I learned that because we ended up with when we, with our gear shop, people were ordering like a a, a five dollar Velcro patch. You know, and it was like we we I got to charge you twenty bucks to send it to you in Australia to buy a five dollar patch, and we put like minimum orders on that. And I understand why. Obviously, it just 
it's a totally different thing that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Yeah. So, um, do you guys do any custom made tools? Like if somebody wants something like unique, like custom made for them, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we do any custom made, custom made tool that we, that we can. So I do get requests for stuff. Um, I'm, I'm planning on, on, uh, getting a special section on the, on the website for it. It's currently not on there, but you can just email us and, and I'll, you know, make whatever I can and just get a price together. Uh, in fact, I've just had a custom made tool made, a, a lady wanted. Um, so something I'd actually thought about. I can't remember. I'm not sure how to pronounce them. I think it's Fro. Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I know one you might want to try making. It's called a Fuchensteiner. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of it before. <laughs> It's uh, I learned about it from Seth Holzer. It's it's like a really narrow hoe, and it's really sharp on both sides. So you can, it's like this, just this little blade, and you can go in with it vertical, and then you turn it horizontal, and you use it to to weed and cut in and around things without bending over. Not to maybe draw one up. I've never seen one or been able to find one. But I was at a seminar where he was talking about it, and he was, you know, speaking uh, German, and so nobody understands a word he's saying. But it'd be Fuchensteiner, and it was like the only word, uh, obviously, because of some connotations that anybody recalled out of it. But I, I've never actually seen one. That that could be an interesting tool to look at. Yeah, um, I've thought about stocking them. I'm uh, going to be looking into that. Um, I do have a, a something similar um, in the store, but it's not handmade. It's factory-made. So I do have a range of factory-made stuff that is made from a, a quality manufacturer in China, uh, and that's just there for, for price point. Sure. So um, you guys actually do, like, bulk orders, and you do a discount on that as well? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, so, I uh, with uh, with bulk orders, you um, you don't pay for any shipping, so shipping's included in the price. Um, and there's 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 a bit of a discount as well. So, uh, for the uh, handmade stuff, uh, the the items of ten or more, um, and any of the factory made stuff is in lots of twelve. And they're just they're shipped just directly from the manufacturer, so there's no, um, you know, we're eliminating the, you know, a lot more of the the travel in the tool as well, um, and you you get the bonus for it, you get the the better price. That's very cool because we have a lot of people like you know small homesteaders and stuff here that are doing on farm sales and things like that. That could even be an opportunity for them to make a little income by sharing these tools and selling them to people that they are already doing business with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I <laughs> I also do um, uh, reselling as well. So uh, I have a, a couple of them and people that have just, just tried a one-off. So um, you've just got to buy a, a set amount and then you, you get a, a wholesale discount on it to, to sell on. And it's a, it's not too high. Um, but otherwise, I, I've also had people that within a permaculture group go, right, Anyone want one of these? I know these are popular and just go, right, yeah, we got 10 of them. People are going to buy 10. Well, I'll buy 10 of them and then everyone gets it for a better price because they buy it as a box discount. That's a great idea. I mean, any of our people out there that are teachers and things like that that are going to be running PDCs and you have 20, 30 students coming in, just, you know, usually you, you don't book that one day and do the course the next. You have some lead time there, so you could actually determine if there's an interest and do a bulk buy for your students. That would be another example of, you know, kind of a value add. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, you could just go, right, you know, well, we can make a, you know, this is what's on available. And, and usually the rice knives, the handmade rice knives are the most popular. Yeah. So they like, right, you know, we can make a bulk order of these and, and you can get it at a discounted price. But I'm always happy to, to talk to people about ideas they, they might have about what they want to do. You know, I'm uh, all about the love and passion of hand tools. Um, it's not about the moolah because otherwise I'd be rich. 
yeah, let's face it, there's only so much money in, in this type of a niche product anyway. So it's it's I mean, what you're doing is it's able enabling you to create some income for yourself, but it's also enabling these artisans to have a greater reach with their product uh, and and earn a living for themselves and their family. Because I've I've been in business long enough to know that people in a position like you tend to make less than the people that are actually building the product, especially when you account for like the value of currency in a local economy with some currency arbitrage. So you're in you're enabling people to do a better job of feeding their family. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, adding yeah, that, yeah. I think that, 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 yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I actually get quite. Uh, it's funny. I uh, I get a lot of very valued customers. I get a lot of people that thank me, and um, it seems a bit funny for me. I'm just like, well, I'm I'm doing what I enjoy doing, and I'm I'm. But they're like, thanks for like being able to actually provide this because. For them, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to purchase such items without that, without that assistance. And that's what it was. That's what the base of it was about. When I was working for the Permaculture Research Institute, and we had those tools available to us, and others are like, "Where do you buy this from?" And the answer was, "The country it came from." Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and now it's like, you buy it from me, and I'll send it wherever you want. Yeah, you mentioned that, Sorry. and I, all I can think of is back 30 years ago when I was in Honduras and the machetes those guys used, and we could buy those machetes for, I think it was like $4, and you know that is 30 years ago, but still it was 4 bucks. and all I can think of now is I should have left with like 50 of those things, and you just, I didn't, you know, I was 19 and in the military, I didn't think that way back then at all, uh, because they were... So, you know, what you just said is the thing. Where do you buy it? In the country they're made in. There is no equivalent. It, it just, there, it, it, it's, it's not just, it's not a materials thing. It's a, we build a machete in America, or we build a machete in China that we ship to America to sell at a camping store for some guy that's going to go chop a few things down to make some kindling for his fire at his campsite that he paid 30 bucks to camp at a night to push a tent. Right, where these people make a machete as a tool to use to earn their living, to provide for their family, and it's just a, a, a you you don't get the same result. I guess it could be done, but it's not. Yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly right. So, what does the future for permaculture tools hold? What do you what are your kind of your your next plans? I mean, we talked about classes and stuff. Have you ever thought of doing something like? Like what your dad's done, right, with uh, the PDC. He's made it so accessible because I don't necessarily have to travel somewhere. I can I can do it by video. Have you thought of maybe doing some things like that with your courses? So uh, Sorry, Jack. I, I missed that last little bit. No, no. What I was saying is so, um, you know, with what's the future for permaculture tools? And like you mentioned classes too, so I was throwing in kind of like, have you thought of doing some of like the classes on tool making or tool usage? On video, like kind of like your dad has done with the PDC. Sorry, Jack. I think he said, um, "What's the the future hold for permaculture tools?" Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what I've been currently working on is a a tool tool range where it will have a a ten year replacement warranty globally. So I'm I'm working on a, on uh, a tool range that is well. The idea is it's the ultimate range, really. Um, it will be, you know, something that if you follow the right rules, it'll it'll last you that time time frame, and and then and then some. So I've been experimenting with. I've got the handle design and the wood down pat. I've got that. I tried to break one. I couldn't. Um, I had a, one of the sickles made in, in it with, uh, we were experimenting with different types of steel. And I literally am getting a, it's a, my large, uh, my large sickle, PT2, and I'm just, it's designed to cut grass, and I've been hitting it as hard as I can into a piece of dried hardwood, and I, cannot break the handle off um and 
I'm pretty sure I've got the right steel. I'm going to do a little bit more testing, but I uh, testing it away. I accidentally cut a piece of a <laughs> a uh, quartz rock in half with it, and it's still in one piece. And I haven't been able to break the blade yet. I just want to test it. The uh, last bit of test I want to do is just how easily it sharpens and how quickly it goes blunt. But so far, the testing looks looks pretty good. And hopefully we'll get them on the website uh, soon. So that's uh, that's exciting news. My my other question that I didn't think you could hear because we had some breakup and and whatnot is: Have you thought about like your courses with using tools or making tools, doing what your dad's done with the PDC and putting them on video? Ah, oh, yes, yes. It's that's I've been wanting to do that for for quite some time. So I have a couple of short videos on how to use the tools um now they're not i don't have them for all the tools but the plan is to have all the tools um done i um i did do a um uh, i did do a crowdfunding to try to uh, get enough money together so i could do a, a dvd video of uses maintenance and of uh, of hand tools, um, it's still something that I'm passionate about wanting to do. So it's it's definitely on the on the future cards to to get that done. Um, and you know I've had requests from people to to do so. You know people that can't come and see me and, and want to know how to use um, how to use the tools correctly because it's important because you can you can save yourself a lot of energy expenditure using the tool in the right way. Um, and that goes for that goes for any hand tools. You're talking about shovels, uh, you know, picks, the wheelbarrow. So many people <laughs> have trouble using a wheelbarrow, especially you know city leavers that, that that come to PDCs, and I've seen them, and I've had to show people how to use a wheelbarrow properly. Um, you know, people yeah. laugh, but no, I completely agree. And I'll tell you something else: people don't know how to use is a freaking shovel. I mean, it's. It's crazy how inept people seem to be with the use of a shovel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So using a shovel can um, um, there's a if it seems funny, but you know there's a wrong way to use a shovel. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I, I appreciate you being with us, and I'll tell you what we're definitely going to be doing is the workshops I run here in my fall. Uh, we're going to make you know uh, getting some of your hand tools an option here and. I really appreciate the work you're doing, and I appreciate you being with us today. We had a few technical difficulties due to the distance, but uh, I think overall the interview came out great. So I want to just uh, thank you for being with us today, Daniel. Yeah, that's no problems. Um, I'd uh, I'd also like to offer the the viewers a, a discount as well. That's great. Yeah, so I'll I'll have it set up um, on there in the coupon code. Um, I think I'll just have it as. Uh, uh, survival podcast 2016 is the code and it'll just be a five uh, percent off very cool I, I appreciate that i'm sure the, the folks listening do as well um and i'll make sure that's in the show notes as, as well for you so, so thank you for doing that no problems at all well, that guys will wrap up for the day. Got some cool stuff for you here at the end. Out of uh, the TSP Business Directory, our featured uh, member of the directory today is Fluid Depiction. It's your source for contracted remote IT support and web design. You can check them out at fluiddepiction.com. You can find other people, of course, in the TSP Business Directory and do business with members of the community at tspbiz.com, tspbiz.com. Remember, if you like the show and the work that I do, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support the show at 18.3 cents an 18.3 cents an episode guys is what it comes down to and uh, you get so many discounts that membership will pay for itself many times over you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and simply clicking on members and you can also log in there if you're already a member there's a link to log in there and remember if you're military law enforcement peace corps active duty or prior service you do qualify for a discount just email me before not after you join with the subject line saying TSPC service discount and send that email to jack at the survival podcast.com so we go into our closing song today I was thinking about hand tools and in my mind I, I kept thinking of a song called made by hand 
And I was like, where is that from? And when I Googled it, I'm like, oh, it's Andrew McKnight, who's also a, provides a discount on his music in the uh, TSP um, uh, MSB. But uh, I first heard Andrew play at Elijah Springs Farm in West Virginia, and it's just really cold country music. It really is. And with the hand tools thing, I thought it would be a good day to play made by hand for you. And usually I link to a YouTube video, but in this case I've actually linked to Andrew's site where you can actually listen to the song and find his other music. And while we talked about hand tools and making things by hand today from a positive note, this song is far more a negative. The scars that are on the land in, in the mining country And what happened as we moved by what we would call progress from men that went down into the mines and mined in shafts to removing entire mountaintops and strip mining the land. And there's a line in it, if the eagle is flying overhead, would he recognize this land? Um, this song might not be everybody's cup of tea. It is kind of a country bluegrass song. But I wanted to share it with you today because, number one, the title kind of fits the made-by-hand thing. But... This is actually real world to me. Growing up in central Pennsylvania, I saw the same scars on the land. The big differences between West Virginia and Pennsylvania is they took most of the coal out of Pennsylvania already. So the scars are just laying there. And we had hard coal and had soft coal. Otherwise, very, very similar environments. And all of the loss has just been felt for a longer period of time economically in central Pennsylvania compared to uh, West Virginia and uh, southwestern PA, where they also have that bituminous soft coal. Anyway, give this song a listen to. It's a deep, meaningful song. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed today's show, and uh, we'll be back with another one for you tomorrow. Tomorrow we're actually going to talk about Stateless marriage. How can you actually set things up to be married without the state being involved? That's an interesting topic that kind of came from a, a variety of questions that we've had about things like virtual nations. It is not without its problems, but I'm going to have a person on who will uh, who'll give you the best advice you can get because they've dealt with it themselves from an interesting angle. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Granddad was a union man worked deep beneath the ground Said a prayer in the morning and again to see the sun go down Day from night by land to night to earn enough to eat. Saturday moon on the mountainside, the fiddle moved their feet. When in the mines of 14, took a walk for 21. Raised five kids in the holler. Strip the land 
Those who made my hand built upon the sturdy backs of those who made. 